everybody. Welcome back to the So We Speak podcast. This is Cole Fakes. I'm joined as usual by Terry Fakes to do one of the big major prophets of the Old Testament, the book of Ezekiel. This book is one of the wilder books for the Old Testament. I love this book, and I think you do too, but the visions in this book make it a little bit inaccessible. And one of the things I hope we can do is put these visions that Ezekiel has in a little bit of context so that when you read them, you can see past the fantastic vision itself and and kind of see the flow of what's happening in this book. But this is one of my favorites. It has some of the most beautiful themes in it. So I'm sure those will pop up as we go through it. Yeah, I would say this is my favorite of the major prophets to read. It's hard to beat any of them, really, Isaiah, Jeremiah. Jeremiah is probably the one that you are drawn to the most on a personal level because he writes his book with a lot of personal anecdotes, and you get to see his thoughts play out over the course of his entire life. Isaiah, you have the major uh, prophecies about the Messiah. You have the prediction of the crucifixion. You have the new heavens and the new earth. I mean, just these iconic passages. And most of us are Uh pretty well acquainted with Isaiah because he's quoted more often in the New Testament than the other major prophets. So you get Paul quoting Isaiah a lot, the gospel writers quoting Isaiah a lot. However, I think Ezekiel might be my favorite prophetic book to read because it is a little bit wilder than the other books. There's a little bit different kind of prophecy going on in Ezekiel, which will become clear as we start to talk through some of these visions. But I have another I have another reason that I really like Ezekiel, and it's a little background of the on the book in my own life. In college, when I was working at Canacuck, I was talking, I think we were standing over a pile of gravel, shoveling during work week, getting ready for the kids to come. And we were all talking about different stuff and being ready to start seminary and um learning a lot about the Bible. I'm talking to this guy. And at this point, I am a very staunch, dyed-in-the-wool Arminian, free-will, low-view of sovereignty person. So we get into this big argument, talking, shoveling, so you're arguing. you're not saved. Is that what you're saying? Yeah, about uh, sovereignty. <laughs> and So this other guy uh, says, you know what, on our next time off, let's go to Starbucks and talk this over. So I said, great. Or no, we're going, we're going to Panera Bread. So we go to Panera in Branson and we sit down and beginning in the in the first chapter of the book of Ezekiel, he walks through the entire book of Ezekiel to convince me of a high view of the sovereignty of God and that God is unapproachably holy. He is orchestrating the universe. What he says goes. His standard is the standard. Um, and we do what he says. And uh, you get into the question of free will and our responsibility. And those those themes run all the way through the book of Ezekiel. But we were there, I think we were there like six hours or something like that, to, to the joy of all the people wow. working there, I'm sure. But we walked through this entire <laughs> book for the most part and argued our way through it. And from that point on, I, I became a high sovereignty of God uh guy. You know, eventually that leads you into thinking about things like reform theology and soteriology. But from the from the get-go, it was really how sovereign is God. And what you get in Ezekiel is a big picture of God's sovereignty, that he is orchestrating the nations because it's a whole, you know, you get an oracle to every known nation, it seems like you get the rise and fall uh-huh. of empires, you get the rise and fall of people. 
you get uh, God's judgment and God's restorations. You, you're going to see a very sovereign, powerful God in the book of Ezekiel. And so that really changed the way that I saw God. It was the first time I'd ever really studied the book of Ezekiel after that, but it left a big impression on me. And every time I come back to Ezekiel, I'm reminded of that. You, you're getting a different picture not a picture of a different God. You're just getting a little bit different angle in Ezekiel than you do some of these other prophetic books. And it leaves a very potent taste in your mouth when you read Ezekiel. And I think to this day, that's one of the reasons I really enjoy it. Well, that's pretty impressive that someone could walk through the book of Ezekiel in and of itself. But I agree with you. And I think that's a good way to think about it is sometimes we want to make too hard a split between the reformed and Arminian camps. And, and that's another subject for another time, but the, really you make a good point, And that is uh, everybody believes God is sovereign and it, but walking through it in that way. And as we walk through this book, you'd be hard pressed to read this and not come away with a higher view of God's sovereignty. Uh, let me put it this way, a greater appreciation of God's sovereignty. I mean, right. the phrase, I think you were telling me when we were talking that the phrase and they, so that they will know that I am the Lord appears, what, 65 times? Is that mm-hmm. what you told me? Yeah. I, I just keep reading it over and over as I'm reading through Ezekiel and you realize, yes, he is, he is orchestrating events so that his people will know that they are in his hand. Right. And he is the future, the future. And to me, that's comforting. A high view of God's sovereignty is a very good thing because that means we are safe in the hands of a God who controls the future. Right. I want you to give us a little background information on Ezekiel to set up the book, but just, just to take off from that point, sometimes we do get kind of skeptical talking about the sovereignty of God. And and some of that has to do that we're not as familiar with God's character often as we should be, because sovereignty right. is only really a problem, you know, being under uh, the total control of someone or something is only a problem if that person has divergent interests than you do. And while it does seem sometimes like we have divergent interests than God in the sense that he's not answering our prayer the way we might want, or, you know, our life isn't turning out exactly the way we want. We know that in the end, God's interests align with perfect goodness and perfect loving kindness. And, and, uh, Oftentimes that means taking us out of certain areas of sin in our life or, you know, transforming us into the image of Christ. But what we see in Ezekiel is this image of the kind of sovereign, trustworthy, excellent and praiseworthy God who is supporting and uh, continuing with his people through the worst period of Israelite history. We're going to be in the midst of the exile, the fall of Jerusalem. And yet it's in that terrible moment in Israel's history that you get this really resounding vision of God's sovereign love for his people, his restoration of his people, his uh, never failing pursuit of his people. And that's a really important vision of sovereignty to have in difficult times. You would probably never think of the book of Ezekiel as a place to go when you're having a, a tough time trusting God or when things are going poorly in your life. But mm-hmm. things did not go well for Ezekiel. And in the midst of that, you get a vision of this very powerful uh, sovereignty of God. The other thing I want to mention before we start to get into the historical context is what what are the prophets doing? And I think we talked a little bit about this in some of our other discussions on the prophetic books. But what you see in Ezekiel, even more than you see in books like Isaiah and Jeremiah, is you have this group of people, the prophets, who are are, are a little bit less uh, uh, like a class of people than we might think. They're not like priests 
in that you're born into the priesthood. Ezekiel is a priest. He's from mm-hmm. a priestly family. But God calls him to be a prophet. So the, the prophetic calling we see in the opening of this book is something that God chooses and God calls him, just like Jeremiah when he's a boy is called and God, you know, makes him be a prophet because Jeremiah doesn't want to be a prophet. Right. And just like when right. Isaiah sees the sees the vision of God's throne, the prophetic calling is something that God initiates and they respond to and live out. The other thing is prophets in the ancient world were kind of wild men in some ways. They're they're not quite part of society, your everyday person. They often come in from the wilderness. They're dressed strange. They're doing weird things. They're bringing messages that are not often well-received. But they are God's mouthpieces speaking to kings and the nation and the people of Israel about what God is saying to them. And one of the ways that they do that is they act out these live parables. And what you need to know to understand a lot of what goes on in Ezekiel is God calls Ezekiel to live out physically the message that he's supposed to give to the people of Israel. So he is supposed to go through these different kind of parables that he's living, whether it be things that are happening in his own life. We're going to see his wife dies in the middle of this book, and it's it's a parable for what's going to happen in Israel. Right. Or uh, you, you see him swept away in these visions, and uh, he starts to play these characters like a watchman. He gets to actually go and look like a watchman would. He gets to you know go and see an eagle. He gets to go and... Um, experience a lot of these messages and then live them out physically before the people of Israel. And you see Isaiah and Jeremiah doing that too, whether they're laying on their side or walking around naked or going down to the potter's house, they're living parables of the message that God wants to speak to his people. And so when you go in with that mindset, you begin to make sense of all the things that are happening to Ezekiel and the ways that he's working to show people, in addition to telling people, even in these very weird ways, what God's message is to them. And so as you read the prophets, always step back and just think about these are live action, contextual parables that contain a visual image of what God is telling these prophets to tell to the people of Israel. And Ezekiel's are especially weird. That's one of the things that's so Mm -hmm. interesting about the book of Ezekiel. Actions and his visions are exceedingly strange, even in comparison to the other prophets. So with that said, as a, as a framework and as a background, where do we begin the book of Ezekiel and what's happening in history? Well, we are coming upon the end of Judea, the southern kingdom. The northern kingdom is conquered by the Assyrians in 722 BC think Isaiah, living around that time. Now, fast forward about 100 years, and we're in the end of the 600s, and the Assyrians are being conquered, basically, in the process of being conquered by the Babylonians. And that's causing a bit of an international power struggle, if you will. You've got Pharaoh Necho in Egypt, who wants to support the Assyrians against the Babylonians. And so in uh, 609, he marches north and traipses through Israel, has a battle with the Israelites and kills King Josiah on the way. 
and he goes up to support the Assyrians, but he loses. And so do the Assyrians. Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonians are just the coming kingdom, and they conquer Nineveh and the Assyrians. They defeat the Egyptian pharaoh and send him home, running for home, and then they come rolling in and take over the Middle East, basically. Syria, today's modern Lebanon, and Israel. Well, when they come in to that area, the king of Judea in Jerusalem is still trying to ally himself with Egypt and everybody around there to resist the Babylonians. In the middle of this come a couple of prophets, Jeremiah and Ezekiel, and God has told them to tell the people, you won't be able to resist the Babylonians. This is actually a judgment from God that you've been told for a hundred years is coming if you will not obey the commandments. And so, needless to say, both Jeremiah and Ezekiel were not bringing a very popular message to the Israelites at that time. So Jeremiah and Ezekiel are contemporaries, and Jeremiah has his whole career basically in Jerusalem, prophesying this same message. Ezekiel is taken away into captivity in 597. Nebuchadnezzar comes down, threatens them, and they say, okay, we were just kidding. We really aren't going to rebel against you. We'll pay taxes. So he takes some hostages, and Ezekiel is one of those, takes them all the way back to modern-day Iraq, and that's where Ezekiel does all of his message. So while he is there, eventually Jerusalem is destroyed by the Babylonians, and both Jeremiah and Ezekiel tell that story, one of them from Jerusalem, the other one from Babylon. So in a nutshell, that kind of gives you the context of the message that Ezekiel is bringing, why it was so unpopular to them, but how it eventually did indeed come about, just as God said. Yeah, that's a that's a great way to frame up what's going on in these two men who are contemporaries. They're prophesying some similar things, but to different groups of people and from different vantage points. Let me make a connection with two other places in Scripture. When Ezekiel is taken from Judah in 597. He's taken to Babylon. But what we find out is he's not in Babylon, the capital. He's kind of southeast of Babylon in another little town, which is actually called Tel Aviv, not the Tel Aviv in Israel, but by the Kibar Canal. And that's actually very close to where Ur is, where Abraham leaves from. So in some ways, you've Mm -hmm. gone full circle. Abraham leaves Ur, goes up to Haran, comes down into Israel. He goes to Egypt. He comes back. That's the promised land in Israel. And once Israel leaves Egypt and goes to the promised land, you have two different trains of exile. You have people going to Babylon and you have people going to Egypt. Ezekiel goes to Babylon. Jeremiah ends up going to Egypt. And the second connection would be Ezekiel is, is taken to Babylon around the same time, maybe not in the exact same group. He doesn't end up in the same place, but he's taken around the same time as Daniel and Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. So just to situate this right. in in the Bible, his 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 prophecies span from he grows up as a child when Josiah is making reforms. He ends his life basically as a contemporary with Daniel in exile. 
And so he he spans the right. worst period of time in Israel, in Judah's history, which is the conquering of Jerusalem, the descent and the conquering of Jerusalem into the exile. We have no reason to believe that Ezekiel lives to the end of the exile. Uh, all, all we see right. is the prophetic vision of restoration. We don't see something like we do in Daniel where the exiles are brought home. The, the other thing I want to mention about his background is he, we know he's a member of a priestly family. Uh, so he is a Levite in some way. Uh, and I think that has to do, I, I think in some ways that plays out with the amount of time he spends focused on the temple. There's a lot of visions and imagery that go with the temple in the book of Ezekiel. And that would have been because if you're in a priestly family, your whole life revolves around serving in the temple. If you want to go listen to our podcast on Leviticus, there's a whole manual in the Bible about what the priests were supposed to be doing right. in the temple. And so he is very concerned with worship of the temple, judgment to the temple, the priests of God, the sins of the people who are supposed to be worshiping God, and then the destruction of the temple. Um, and so this insight into his background and his family life gives us an insight into why he spends so much time talking about that in his visions in the text. Exactly. That's really great context to uh, put around Ezekiel is it is very temple centric and he does come from a priestly family. And there's an interesting sense here, too, to me that he is sent into exile to minister, even in their exile, even in their least faithful moment. God sends his emissary, if you will, to minister to Israel at its lowest point. So even when they're being disciplined by God, they have not been forgotten by God. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and an important thing to remember is he's prophesying to people who are already in exile about the full exile and the destruction of the temple. For He's been gone 11 years, but his prophesying probably starts closer to 593, and so you, right. you've still got seven or eight years of prophesying before the temple is truly destroyed. And as we move into an outline of the book, the book essentially follows the chronology of Ezekiel's life. The first 24 mm -hmm. chapters talk about coming judgment. That would be the time before the temple is destroyed in 586. Then right. you get oracles against the nations, which really follow the time in Ezekiel's life after Jerusalem is destroyed. And then at some time later, going all the way down until 571 BC, he is talking about the kingdom, the future kingdom, and the restoration of Israel, uh, particularly at the end of the book, through a vision of the new temple, the new heavenly temple in Jerusalem. And we'll talk about that. The, the, the temple vision has caused a lot of people to speculate over what, what is this temple and where is it and is it ever really fulfilled uh, in the visions of in the visions of Ezekiel that end the book. So the the big outline is pretty easy to break down for Ezekiel because it follows a chronological pattern. But what you see once you start to dive into this is there are these little sections, and a lot of them have become really famous. If you think about what do people know from the book of Ezekiel, the opening scene, the vision right. of the Lord, his call, uh, the dry bones. There's a lot of famous parts in here that we refer to the new covenant in 36 that we'll talk about. But I think to set up the real themes of the book, we need to we need to get into the call, and then we need to talk about the judgment at the temple of God. So how does the book begin? Mm -hmm. You know, this is probably the most interesting and wildest calling of a prophet. 
you know, usually it's the word of the Lord came to so-and-so, and they get a commission saying, uh, thus saith the Lord, go tell my people this. This opens with one of the wildest visions. So in chapter one, he gives you the date, 593 BC, basically. He said, I saw visions of God. He said, the word of the Lord, verse three, came to Ezekiel the priest when I was in the land of the Babylonians and tells where, and the hand of the Lord was upon him there. And then he sees this amazing vision which is about the really has this high, high view of the glory of God. And that the very end of this is his calling. In other words, God says, after he appears in this vision, son of man, which is a common uh, way, a common address for Ezekiel. If you, by the way, son of man, has come to mean for Christians is a little bit messianic. So if you read the Jewish translations of the Old Testament, it will say human being, which is a valid translation of that. But I think there's something to the fact that he calls him a son of man. And uh, he says, stand up and I'm going to give you a message and I want you to take this to the people. But the vision itself, Cole, is really amazing. How would you describe uh, how would you summarize this vision? Well, I think the the intro is is interesting, like you mentioned. In verse 1, the heavens were open, and I saw visions of God. That's a really arresting phrase. And that does describe what happens in this opening scene. Whereas Isaiah is transported, and he sees the heavenly temple and the throne. In this vision in Ezekiel, God's glory descends, and he sees the glory of the Lord coming to him. And what happens is it's a storm coming out of the north with brightness and fire and thunder and lightning. And in the midst of this, these storm clouds come these creatures. And this is one of the most famous parts of Ezekiel. These four living creatures who we know from reading the rest of the Bible look like the creatures that you see that attend to the glory of God every time it's seen. And what's happening here is these creatures are the vanguard bringing down the throne of God. This It's the mobile throne of God, not the throne that we're going to see right. in Revelation chapter 4 and 5, but the mobile throne of God. Right. And it is coming down with these creatures, and they, are, they have wings, they have four faces, they have uh, human hands. Uh, I mean, they, there's a very strange description. They have a human face, they have a lion, an ox, and an eagle. And they are basically moving in these straight lines around, flitting around the throne. And uh, as he's looking at these creatures, he sees these wheels, and there are wheels inside of wheels. You've probably seen illustrations of this. People have done some pretty crazy drawings of what this might have looked like. But I, the, the point that I think is interesting whenever I read this is wherever they go, in verse 17, in any four directions, they go without turning. And the rims of these wheels are full of eyes. And when the living creatures go, the wheels went beside them. And when the living creatures rose from the earth, the wheels rose. Now, these are wheels full of eyes. And the picture you're getting is everything is eternally and unchangingly focused on the glory of God. They never turn. They never get distracted. They never give their attention to anything else 
other than attending to the glory of God. And so once they come down, the expanse of their heads opens up and there is a throne and seated above the likeness of the throne was a person with a human appearance. And from above the waist, the, the, the appearance is like gleaming metal with fire all around it. And downward from uh, the waist, he says, there was the appearance of fire and brightness all around, like the appearance of the bow that is in the cloud on the day of rain. So was the appearance of the brightness all around. And such was the appearance of the likeness of the glory of the Lord. And when I saw it, I fell on my face and I heard the voice of one speaking. Now we're going to get the call of Ezekiel here in a minute, but I just want to stop and point out how overwhelming the appearance of the glory of the Lord is for Ezekiel. And that this is this is still true. We are, are often, I think, a little bit too familial with <clears throat> the access that we have to God. But when you see people in the Old Testament, especially, who get a glimpse of the glory of God, they fall on the ground like they're dead. And what we're going to see is after Ezekiel has this encounter with God, he goes back among the exiles and he says he's overwhelmed for days after this, unable to speak and unable to do anything. So you get this really powerful vision of the glory of God that descends and comes to Ezekiel. And it's very similar to what you see in Revelation chapter one. If you look at the description of Jesus in -hmm. Revelation one, flaming fire, brightness, uh, feet and his waist and all the descriptions there match pretty well. This is the glory of the son of man, the true son of man, the one who has a human appearance, who's coming to see Ezekiel. You know, this vision is one that we would probably classify as apocalyptic. And you see that in uh, other extra biblical literature, you'll see it in the book of Revelation. And what I mean by that is an apocalyptic vision is one that is not a vision that's giving you details, like just conveying information. Think of an apocalyptic vision as trying to convey an impression. Like if you watch the Lord of the Rings movie, you're not looking for historical details, but you're getting an overwhelming impression. And you you made a good point, Cole. At the end of this, he is overwhelmed. And that's the key message. I mean, the wheels, the eyes, all those are symbolic, and you could draw some data from that. But the the intent of this is that we too would be overwhelmed thinking about God. And my favorite verse is the last one, Cole, where you think about this, he doesn't see God. He sees the appearance of the likeness of the glory of God, and he falls on his face, which is Mm. what everyone in the Bible always does when they're confronted with God's power. It's just an overwhelming vision of the the holiness and the majesty of God. Right. That That's what you have to take from the beginning of this book that sets the trajectory of the whole book is you, you see this you have likeness of the appearance of the glory of the Lord descending before Ezekiel and making a huge impression. In fact, his life is never the same and he is never the same. He's, there's, there's, Right. It's always dangerous to psychologize the people in the Bible, but without psychologizing him, you can just read about the changes that take place in his psyche as the book goes on. He is impacted by seeing the things that he's seen. And the message that that God gives him is also fundamental to understanding this book. He's going to see some things 
that we would say you can't unsee. He's going to see some very brutal, right. very hard right. things to see. And it's rooted in what happens in this opening vision. He says in chapter two, verse one, son of man, stand on your feet and I will speak with you. Well, he's not even capable of doing that. So several right. times in this book, actually, you see the spirit entered into me and set me on my feet. Or you see the spirit enters into him and takes him to Jerusalem to see the temple. So the spirit enters him and he says, son of man, I am sending you to the people of Israel, the nation of rebels who have rebelled against me. And in order to do that, he stretched, God stretches out his hand and gives him a scroll to eat. Now this also happens in the book of Jeremiah. And it also happens in the book of revelation. He's eating this revelation scroll and it has writing on the front and the back. This is a war scroll. I think a lot of people argue that whether it's this one or the one that is, is in Daniel or something that you see in Jeremiah or what you see in Revelation, there's mm-hmm. a consistent message that God is giving to all these prophets to give to his people. And it is a message of lamentation and mourning and woe. You know, this is he doesn't give Ezekiel a feel-good message. He gives Ezekiel a message right. of lamentation and mourning and woe. And he says, son of man, eat what you find here. Eat this scroll and go and speak to the house of Israel. So I opened my mouth and he gave me the scroll to eat. And he said to me, son of man, feed your belly with this scroll that I will give you and fill your stomach with it. And I ate it. And in my mouth, it was sweet as honey. So again, this is one of these living parables of he has ingested, he is mm-hmm. The word of God has become part of him. The word of God is sustaining him. The word of God is his nutrition and is uh, his energy that he's going to use to speak to the people. And I'm always struck by what happens at the end. He's given this commission to go Mm -hmm. talk to the people of Israel. And thus says the Lord God, they're going to refuse to hear, he says. So you're not going to have an easy time with this. This is like Jeremiah. He makes You are not going to be successful. Yeah, he makes his forehead hard because he's going to need it against these stiff-necked people. Right. But then when the spirit when the spirit lifts him up and he hears behind him a great voice of the earthquake, this is like the vanguard is getting ready to roll out. It says, "Blessed be the glory of the Lord from its place." This is an important line to understand the message of the book of Ezekiel. "Blessed be the glory of the Lord from its place, the holiness and the glory of God." are the captivating vision of Ezekiel. You know, he finishes up there too, and I want to make a parallel with Revelation chapter 10, because there also the scroll is sweet, but it burns the stomach. Mm. And as Ezekiel is carried away from the presence of the Lord, the spirit lifted me up in verse 14 and took me away. And I went in bitterness in the heat of my spirit, the hand of the Lord being strong upon me. And when I came back to the exiles, I sat there overwhelmed for seven days. And so there's this sense as we get ready to read all these hard words of God, is that the word of God is always good and it's sweet and it's nourishment for our soul. But sometimes God's judgments are bitter. And Ezekiel Uh, had the beauty of taking God's word to the people, and he had the difficulty of taking a hard word, a hard word of judgment to the people. Yeah, so something interesting happens to Ezekiel after this. Right after he's charged to take the word of God, to eat it, and then to speak it to God's people, 
the glory of the Lord begins to depart and he gets his first mission as a prophet. And effectively, he goes into his house. He's tied up with cords. His tongue is immobilized by God so that he can't speak. And he waits. And when God frees him and opens his tongue, he says, I'm going to open your mouth. This is in chapter three, verse 27. I will open your mouth and you Mm -hmm. will say to them, thus says the Lord, he who will hear, let him hear. And he will who will refuse to hear, let him refuse, for they are a rebellious house. Jesus takes up this saying many times in the Gospels. God says, I'm going to fill mm-hmm. your mouth with my words. You say, thus says the Lord. And anybody who has an ear will hear, or anybody who can hear will hear. Jesus says this all over the place. And he says it every time in the letters to the seven churches in the book of Revelation, which we talked about in Revelation right. part one. So then he's going to do a little real life parable. He's going to lay on his side and he's going to get this brick and he's going to engrave the city of Jerusalem on it. And he's going to build siege works against it. So he's setting up like action figures, a little uh, army, right. army and setting up camps for what's going to happen to Jerusalem. And he's going to lay on his side and reenact this siege and bring people into his house to see it and tell them what's going to happen to Israel. And so that's what he does. He starts showing people what's going to happen. The people are not happy about it. They're not believing what he's saying, but he's prophesying Jerusalem is going to be besieged and it is going to be destroyed. Now, what's really fascinating about the book of Ezekiel is this beginning message doesn't come to fruition for, like we said, maybe seven or eight years after this, depending on what 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 time exactly right. some of these events are happening. But what's going to happen next is God's going to show that he actually judges Jerusalem before the Babylonians judge Jerusalem. Right. In fact, what Israel thinks is happening during the judgment is the Babylonians come in and they destroy the temple of God. They destroy every brick in the temple. But what mm-hmm. we know from Ezekiel is God has left and forsaken the temple before the Babylonians get there. And the reason that happens is really kind of interesting. I think the most powerful vision in Ezekiel is, is begins in chapter 8. So after he's been talking to the people about the coming wrath of God, he, he himself is going to see a vision of what's going to happen spiritually to the temple before what happens physically in the temple. So in the sixth year, in the sixth month, on the fifth day of the month, Ezekiel is very concerned with time. He time stamps all of his prophecies. Uh, He's sitting with the elders of Judah in his house and the hand of the Lord falls upon him. And he looks and behold, he has, he sees somebody who has the appearance of a man. And below what appeared to be his waist was fire, and above was brightness like gleaming metal. Okay, so we're kind of back in chapter one now. We're seeing this same image of the glory of God with human Mm -hmm. likeness. And this person reaches out and takes him by a lock of his head, and the Spirit lifts him up between earth and heaven and brings him in the vision of God to Jerusalem, to the entrance of the gateway of the inner court. What's going to happen is he's going to see the glory of God ascending from the Holy of Holies in the temple. And uh, he's going to recognize that this was the same glory of God that he had seen earlier. It was dwelling in the temple, like we find out in First and Second Kings. The glory of God descends on the temple. Right. But now it's time for the glory of God to depart from the temple. And what happens is there's going to be judgment within the temple itself. Judgment begins at the house of God. And you're going to get this message of judgment against idolaters. And it's going to start with the people who were supposed to be serving God. This is really an arresting vision, like we said, because 
Ezekiel is going to see people who are supposed to be serving God, who are supposed to be conducting sacrifices, and probably people that he knew well, maybe members of his own family, who were actually idolaters. And what's going to happen is there are going to be, uh, in the vision, there are going to be um, judgments against these people. They're going to be slaughtered because of the idolatry Mm -hmm. and because of leading people astray in the temple. This is a pretty brutal vision in 8, 9, and 10. You know, it also, it reminds me of two things, Cole, in the uh, Jesus in the book of Revelation, this idea of removing God's presence. You know, so one of the warnings to the churches in the book of Revelation is if you're not faithful, you can have your lampstand removed, if you will. In other words, God's presence will be removed from you. And I think Israel took for granted that God would always be with them, whether they were faithful or they weren't faithful. And this to me is like one of the saddest days in the history of Israel when the presence of the Lord departs from them. And I think that we today, just a little application, we should not take the presence of God for granted in our churches is uh, God stays with his faithful people. And we shouldn't take that for granted and assume that we'll always have the blessing in the presence of God, no matter what. Uh, that that's just this is a powerful reminder to me that we too are called to be faithful. Mm-hmm. What's interesting about this scene is there's so much that we don't know. It's it's a glimpse into the spiritual world that we don't often see, and so we're reminded mm-hmm. that there's a lot going on spiritually, warfare going on spiritually, the divine counsel and glory and appearance of God. We get a little glimpse of that in this scene, and so you get all these kind of interesting characters in this scene that we don't really see other places in the Bible. Of course, you have the appearance of the glory of God who's consistent throughout, but then then you have almost like a lieutenant of God in this passage. And he's described as a person who is clothed in linen from head to toe, and he has a writing case on his waist, like a fanny pack, I guess, Mm -hmm. on his waist. And he's the one that's giving orders to the people in this vision. I've always thought this is really interesting. I've never read anything hugely enlightening on this as to what we should think about this, this angel or person. Uh, but you see this person who has is clothed in linen giving orders. He orders the executioners to come in. And then at the end of chapter 9, behold, the man clothed in linen with the writing case at his waist brought back words saying, I have done as you commanded me. And then all of a sudden we don't see him anymore. And it's I always wonder in things like this, whether it's the creatures, whether it's this guy, whether it's some of the other things going on, how much is there that we'll find out someday about uh, God and the way that he's working things on the earth that we don't get to currently right. see? Now, you do see a person clothed in linen in the book of Revelation as well, but there's some very mysterious parts of this vision that we just, we don't know. And like you said, we shouldn't take the presence of God for granted And we also shouldn't take for granted that we know everything that's going on. It's kind of like in the book of Joshua, where you see the commander of the armies of the Lord. Who knew there was one of those? We know there is one. We just don't know what he's up to all the time. And you get that sense as well in this vision that we, we don't know all that's going on, but God knows everything. He knows the sins of the people. He sends his glory, his presence. He Mm -hmm. sends his lieutenants and they are taking care of, the will of the Lord on the earth. And that's happening all the time. We just don't get to see it quite as clearly as we do here in the book of Ezekiel. 
you know, Paul tells us in Ephesians that we too are part of this battle. We just don't see the whole picture yet, as you're saying, but that our battle is not really against flesh and blood, but against the principalities and the powers and that there are greater things going on. And we are part of that. And we fight that battle with our faith and not with our brawn or our might. Right. And I think that's a good reminder that even though we don't see the whole picture, we are part of what's happening. We've been enlisted into the kingdom of God. Yeah. The the saddest part of this story is that the glory does leave the temple at the end this whole orchestration is a team of God's messengers and minions who are escorting the glory of the God away from the temple. So, you know, if you're in Jerusalem at this point, the temple doesn't look any different, but the glory of God is gone. The glory of God has departed from the temple and it is ready at that point to be destroyed. Of course, we know that when Herod builds the temple again, People end up offering sacrifices when Jesus is there. The sacrificial system is is fully intact. People are doing that. But there's a similar sense that the glory of God leaves the temple again when when the curtain is torn, when Jesus dies, and when he rises from the dead, we realize... Oh, the the spirit of God, the glory of God has now departed from human temples and now is in our hearts in the same way that you see the spirit coming into Ezekiel and the spirit that is animating these creatures. Now we know that the glory of God really has departed from temples and is dwelling in the hearts of human beings. So there's a little bit of a proto vision here of what's going to happen fully when Jesus rises from the dead and takes the presence of God everywhere. But for the time being, it's a it's a leaving of forsaking. And we're actually going to see the glory come back to the temple at the very end of the book of Ezekiel, uh, the new heavenly vision of the temple. But for right now, the glory of God has left, has departed. And so the temple is ready to be destroyed. So for for the chapters after this, you you get a couple of interesting things. In chapter 16, there's one of the more famous chapters. It's a vision of God. It's really one of the more beautiful, but in the end, gut-wrenching stories in the Bible. You see this picture of God coming and seeing Israel, his people, and they're helpless like a baby who's been left on the side of the road, who's been exposed to die. And God takes Israel into his house and provides for them, turns, turns Israel into a princess, but Israel disobeys and sells herself out as a prostitute, as a harlot. And uh, we talked about this when we were in the book of Revelation. You see this vision of the prostitute here, and then all of a sudden you see the prostitute has been transformed into the bride of Christ at the very end. And uh, one of the things that's so cool about this picture is if you read the whole Bible, you get to see the end of a story that just begins in the book of Ezekiel. So in this time of judgment, you, we know as Christians, the fulfillment of this judgment is going to be a purified bride who is worthy to be uh, united with Christ in the end because it's been purified. So there's a there's a great description there. It's a powerful image. And then all the way up to chapter 24, we're getting increasing messages of judgment that are going to lead to the single biggest act of judgment in the history of Israel. Chapter 24 is is one of the most poignant chapters in the whole Bible to me. You get uh, Ezekiel going to the people and basically telling them that Jerusalem is destroyed. 
that it's fine. What he's been telling them was going to happen has happened. And in verse 15, it's it says this very simply. And, and the sparseness of the narrative here is what's powerful to me. The word of the Lord came to me, son of man, behold, I am about to take the delight of your eyes away from you at a stroke. And I want you to think about Jerusalem being destroyed. God himself is having the one in whom he delighted is being destroyed as well. And yet you shall not mourn or weep, nor will you cry. Sigh, but not aloud. Make no mourning for the dead. Put on your turban and your shoes on your feet. Do not cover your lips or eat the bread of men. So I spoke to the people in the morning, and in the evening my wife died. And on the next morning, I did as I was commanded. And needless to say, he comes and speaks the next day, and the people said, will you tell us what these things mean? Why are you acting like this? You should be mourning, but you're not. And he says, because the word of the Lord told me to say this, say this to the house of Israel. He said, behold, Jerusalem is about to fall and you will do as I have done. You will not cover your lips. You won't eat the bread of men. You will not mourn or weep, but you will will sit knowing your iniquity and the judgment of God. And Ezekiel is going to be a sign to you that when this happens, when you get word of Jerusalem being destroyed, you'll know that I am the Lord God. And so it's a really sad time, but it really emphasizes what you said at the beginning is Ezekiel's entire life becomes his message. Mm-hmm. And I, I've thought about this a lot, Cole, in my pastoral life, is you sometimes can think of being a pastor or actually just being a Christ follower as a, quote, oh, profession. In other words, you have your life. And being a Christ follower and sharing your testimony is something you sort of do on top of that. But if you look at Ezekiel, you get a better image of what a Christ follower is. And that is everything that you have and everything that you are is part of the message that God is sending. And so we think Ezekiel, Ezekiel acts like a guy who's crazy, but he's not. He just does crazy things. And you know what? You could say the exact same thing about a Christ follower. Christ followers are not crazy, but if you're in the world looking at them, you're going to think they do really crazy things. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's definitely an element of what looks crazy to the outside world in what Ezekiel is doing here. But he is the message, as you said. He his life has become his message, and so we, you know, we read a chapter like this, we think about how terrible is that? Why would God do that? Well, one, this is what's going to happen to them. And so God is being gracious to them by giving them a visible warning of what's going to happen in many households in Israel. But then again, it's also something that is reflective on what God is doing. So just in the same way that we see Abraham offering his son Isaac, we think, oh, how barbaric is that? That would That is horrible that God would call somebody to do that. Well, God in the end didn't call Abraham to go through with it. He himself went through with it. He, he is the one here. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's why I pointed out, Chapter 16, he is the one here who lost um, his bride in addition to Ezekiel. Of course, he's going to raise his bride from the dead. And uh, that's part of what Ezekiel is there to do is to show them not just their perspective, but God's perspective. And so he's constantly doing that through this, through these, these scenes. Now, that's a a break in the in the flow of Ezekiel. We're going to get prophecies against the nations for uh, the next chunk of 
eight chapters. And I just want to point out one thing as we go here. The longest oracle in this section is against Tyre, with the king of Tyre. So thinking about that, that's kind of northwest of the land of Israel. Think Jezebel, who was a princess mm-hmm. of Tyre. Uh, but also think there's been some good memories with Tyre as well. There's a there's a quote or at least an allusion in chapter 28, all the way back to First Kings chapter 7, when a craftsman from Tyre comes to help build the temple. He is full of wisdom and he produces things that are perfect in beauty, just like the description in chapter 28, verse 12 says of the king of Tyre himself. This is an area where there's a lot of speculation in what this is talking about. If you just read this, you think something is going on in this passage. I'm not Mm -hmm. sure exactly what it is. A lot of times people have taken this to be the fall of Satan. So in chapters 27 and 28, you get this perfect being of some kind, a signet of perfection, full of wisdom, perfect in beauty. You were in Eden, the garden of God, it says in chapter 28. Every precious stone was your covering. Sardius, topaz, diamond, beryl, onyx, and jasper. You were anointed guardian cherub. I placed you, and you were on the holy mountain of God. In the midst of the stones of fire, you walked. You were blameless in your ways from the day you were created. You're sitting there thinking, this is this, this has to be talking about something. And of course, since it says you were in Eden, right. the garden of God, you go back and you say, maybe, maybe this is... Satan who fell and uh, he was like the perfect guardian. I don't know if this is talking about Satan. And let me give you two reasons why. Number one, when you get this description of the stones and the clothing that this person is wearing, these are the high priestly stones in his, in Exodus chapter 28. So th- this is a person who is a representative of God. And there's a whole way of reading uh, this in Psalm chapter 8 in thinking that Satan, before he rebelled, uh, we talked about this not too long ago in a podcast, was someone who was given a mission by God to train up and develop the human race. And because he didn't want to do that, he rebels against God. So we take the fall of Satan not as a pre-human creation event, but something that's actually happening in that moment. He is rebelling against God. That That's more likely with this passage. But I think the, the other thing is because of this description of the high priestly stones and the perfection being placed on the mountain of God, this also could be Adam. In fact, I think it's maybe a little bit more likely that it's Adam because it talks about uh, sinning, and being cast away from the mountain of God, uh, being destroyed, heart being proud because of beauty. This seems very human in some sense as well. And so I think it's mm-hmm. it's it's difficult to know who's being talked about here, but I don't want to count out Adam from this. This is a human king, the king of Tyre. This is real judgment and death that's going to befall this king. And in that sense, it is the story of every person who lifts themselves up against God. It is the story of Israel more broadly. It is the story of Adam who sinned and was cast away from the presence of God. It is the reverse story of what Jesus did, who was perfect and who continued to walk with God and triumph over evil. So it's sometimes it's a little dismissive, I think, to say this is only about Satan. It really is about a human king. And it really is about humanity in general. Mm -hmm. And it may also be about the fall of Satan as well. Well, I I agree with you. I do think this is 
uh, bigger than just the King of Tyre. I do think that it's very reasonable to look at a prophecy or a judgment like this and say this is effectively against anyone in this circumstance who's been blessed by God, who's been lifted up by God, and who rebels against God. If you want to think about it, it's a treacherous thing to do. I will say, however, that I think the preponderance of historical evidence is that this is aimed toward uh, Satan or Lucifer. I mean, it certainly is about the king of Tyre. I agree with you. I think it's a multiple fulfillment. But the Jews, if you think about the book of First Enoch, which is written between the Testaments, the Old Testament, and New Testament, the book of First Enoch understands the fall of Satan as this, that Satan did indeed have a, a mission to care for and educate human beings, but he corrupted them instead. I mean, think serpent in the Garden of Eden and then the book of Enoch. Again, it's not inspired, but it's legend that those they taught humanity all kinds of evil things, sorcery, etc. And basically, Satan was treacherous. God gave him a mission to develop and care for humanity, and instead, he corrupted humanity to serve him. And he ended up rebelling against God. I find that to be very compelling and very consistent. But I do agree with you. This is probably referring to the king of Tyre and to Satan, but by extension to anyone who acts treacherously toward God. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's a it's a picture of all different kinds of sin and different situations. Of course, it would it would never be good to find yourself in this situation, but all different situations of people who have rebelled against God. And there's a lot that can get uh, caught in there. But yeah, I, I, I take your point about Satan and the tradition. I just don't want to limit that to, oh, this is just kind of a right. supernatural uh, fall of Satan, Lucifer kind of thing. This this is really the kind of judgment against any sin, like you say, any sin that would set you up against God, which is the root of all sin. Uh, this is the kind of outlook that God has on that situation. And so it is it is applicable for us as well. Um, if you go to the end of this section, chapter 32, you have another shift in the narrative. Starting in chapter 33, we're going to get a vision of the renewal and restoration of Israel. And this is where Ezekiel ends his prophecy is not on the judgment that has occurred, but in the restoration that God will provide. And chapter three is kind of 33 is kind of a hinge point in the book. And it has one of these really mm -hmm. famous images from Ezekiel. And I know it's one that I've heard you teach on uh, before. What do you make of Ezekiel as Israel's watchman? Yeah, that is a powerful idea. Um, the, uh, this idea of, uh, the commission given to Ezekiel, it strikes me a little bit, and you may disagree with this, but a little bit as to our commission as Christians in the world today. And so in chapter 33, uh, he, he opens, it says, the word of the Lord came to me, son of man, speak to your people and say to them. And then later in verse seven, it says this. So you, Ezekiel, I have made a watchman for the house of Israel. You're a lookout. Whenever you hear a word from my mouth, you will give them warning. If I say to the wicked, you will die, and you don't tell them to warn them, that wicked person will die in his iniquity, but I will require his blood at your hand. In other words, you're partly responsible because you didn't warn him, as I told you. But if you warn the wicked to turn from his way, and he doesn't, that person will certainly die in their sin, but you will have delivered your soul. 
And so Ezekiel's job is to be faithful to deliver the word of the Lord, not to save people, not to get them to turn back, but to deliver the word of the Lord. And I think about that a lot with the Great Commission is that we have been entrusted with the word of God. And and we, too, are watchmen in that we need to bring the message of good news and the message of warning of judgment of God if they don't heed that good news to the world. And if if we fail to do that, then it seems to me that their blood is in some way partly on our hands, according to this. What do you think about that? Mm -hmm. Yeah, it is a commissioning passage, and I think we we would be— um, remiss to just look and say, well, this was this was just Ezekiel. This was just the Old Testament prophets. This is um, an indictment on any person who wants to sit out, basically, in the people of God. This is a commissioning to all of us that we bear what we know, our story, the truth of the gospel with us at all times. And, uh, you know, sometimes that feels really intimidating because, like we said at the beginning, Ezekiel's message is mourning and woe and lament. But here at the end of the book, it's a message of hope and promise and salvation. And I want to fast forward to chapter 36, Mm -hmm. because this is really what we have been charged with as Christians, because we see the whole picture of what God was doing. You get a glimpse in Ezekiel of what it's going to be like when the Messiah comes, the people of God are restored, and um, God is making a redemption for his people. He says, I will take you from the lands and gather you from all the countries and bring you into the land. I will sprinkle clean water on you and you shall be clean from all your uncleanness and from all your idols. I will cleanse you and I will give you a new heart and a new spirit. I will put in you and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. And you will dwell in the land that I gave to your fathers and you will be my people and I will be your God. This is the promise of the entire Bible. If you take the whole storyline of the Bible, Mm -hmm. this is the promise. A new heart, new spirit, dwelling with God. He will be our God, and we will be his people. And so Ezekiel turns, and we as the watchmen now turn to this message of new heart, restoration, cleansing, uh, being sprinkled with clean water. This is from John chapter 3, makes an allusion to this passage. Sprinkled with clean water, washed and purified to live with God again through his son, Jesus. And the cool thing about this is in chapter 37, you get a parable, a, a visual parable of this promise that's made in chapter 36. So one of the most famous chapters in Ezekiel is chapter 37, the Valley of the Dry Bones, where Israel Israel is pictured as this dead army, and Ezekiel goes out and preaches to the bones. And God says, I want you to go give a sermon to mm-hmm. these bones. And he says, can these bones live? And Ezekiel is almost dumbfounded. He says, you, you, you know the answer to this, not me. And uh, he says, go ahead and prophesy over these bones and raise up these bones to life again. And that's exactly what happens. You know, I can't read this. This is a beautiful story. But I can't read that without thinking of Ephesians chapter 2, where Paul says, As for you, you were dead in your sins when you used to walk in the way of this world. And then a few verses later, but God made you alive with Christ. It it literally is a little picture of this dead bones, is that we didn't realize it, but we were on the path to death and destruction, and it's only because God made us alive in Christ. I love this story, and it always reminds me of Ephesians chapter 2. 
Yeah, this is how the vision ends, is this restoration, resurrection of God, putting his people back together, bringing them to life again, and uh, not just giving them a new heart in a spiritual sense, but raising them up again to everlasting life. And so if this is the dominant image of the end of the book of Ezekiel, it puts everything else in relief. You have God who is holy and who is glorious, who is judging people for sin, and yet he himself makes a way for his people to be with him again by raising them up to life again. And like I said, we get the whole message of Ezekiel, not just the pre-destruction, not just the pre-Messiah message. We get to see the whole thing, this message of restoration. And the natural part that follows is where the book ends and where I think sometimes we have a gap in our theology. God raises up this people and then immediately turns and begins to prophesy about this new temple. Because remember the end of this prophecy in chapter 36, I will put a new heart in your chest, a new spirit within you, and you will obey my rules and you will dwell with me. You will be my people and I will be your God forever. Well, what what do you need to do that? Well, in Ezekiel's time, what you need is a temple. You need a temple for God to come back down and dwell with his people and his people to dwell with him. And so from chapter 40 through 48, you get this description of a new temple and he measures it. He goes around and looks at all of it. There's water that's flowing out of it. It's the water of life. And you get a prince who's going to come back into this temple and he's going to be like the people of God coming in and dwelling with him again. And I always love the way the book of Ezekiel ends. It wraps up the goal. The goal is not just to be raised from the dead. The goal is to be reunited mm-hmm. forever with God. And so you get to the very end of this uh, description of the temple in chapter 48, and the water's flowing out, and uh, the property of the Levites is defined, and all the tribes are there. And they're measuring all this area, and the circumference of the city will be 18,000 cubits. And the name of the city from that time on will be the Lord is there. God is there with his people forever. And of course, the great consummation of this story is when Jesus comes back to the temple and he is the people of God returning. He's perfect Israel, perfect humanity, perfect unfallen Adam returning to the temple. And he is reuniting us with God. And then, of course, as we talked about, when he's crucified, the presence of God is out from the Holy of Holies, and it's everywhere. It's dwelling in us. So we see the fulfillment of Ezekiel's vision of this new temple in Christ and in us. We now are the temple of the living God. And so I love this picture of the end of Ezekiel, of the holiness and majesty of God reunited with sinful people who have been redeemed. That's my takeaway. What What's your takeaway at the end of the book? Well, I really agree with that, that if you, you want to connect this to Christ and the faithful Israel, faithful people coming back to God and making us faithful so that we can be restored. But, you know, I'd connect it with something you started with, the idea of the sovereignty of God. As you get to the end of this book and you look back and you realize that with if, if God is loves us, That's what causes him to pursue us. But the fact that God is sovereign and powerful, more powerful even than sin, is the only hope that we have because we cannot restore ourselves. And so I take away from this, this high view of, if you think about it, God is the one calling the shots for everything that happens in this book. And so he is sovereign and he uses that sovereign power to restore us. And that's the hope of humanity. 
Thanks for listening to the So We Speak podcast. If you like what you hear, go ahead and leave a comment, leave a review, email us, tell us what you like about it, tell us what you'd improve about it. Thanks to all you guys who are listening, and we'll see you next week on the So We Speak podcast.